0: Uh, But you don't get to hear from me today. Uh, You do, but you're going to see that uh, we're in the book of Luke, and we're going verse by verse through the book of Luke, and virtually everything except for Luke's little preface at the beginning of what kind of uh, starts this particular parable from Jesus, uh, you get to hear directly from Jesus. The world does not need to hear from me, or Pastor Billy, or anyone else. The world needs to hear from the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll get to hear from him this morning. What he would speak to you, what he would speak to us individually, what he would speak to the church, and what he's speaking in fact to the world. So Luke chapter 19, we're going to pick it up. We haven't been in this particular Luke's study. In a few weeks uh, we had the Christmas season and last week I did a message when God builds a family and uh, I'll come back and do a topical message on January the 24th which is our Ministry Sunday. Treat, Please try and be here January 24th is our Ministry Sunday. We will have set up out there tables of all the different ministries. Uh, I'll be sharing a much shorter message but then talking a little bit about the different ministry areas and what God would have us do in those ministries. So, when we're done, you get to go out there and look at the different ministries, sign up for something that you say, hey, I didn't even know we did that, or I didn't know my gift or talent could be useful in this place. Uh, the reality is that every single person has gifts and talents that God wants to use. Everybody, any single person. And so, God wants to use us uh, collectively. So, we'll, uh, we'll do that on the 24th. But we're back in our Luke study today starting with verse 11, picking up where we had left off before uh, the Christmas season. Luke 11, I'll be reading verses 11 through 27. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, And said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And So it was when he returned, having received the kingdom, he uh, he commanded those servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, master, Your mina has produced ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your servant has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief, for I feared you, Because you are an austere man, you collect where you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you, to everyone who has will be given, but, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Now these are some words you might not hear most people speak of Jesus saying. But this is a parable that he gives, and let's open up again in prayer. Lord, we just ask for your Spirit to now speak through your word. This is the very words of the Son of God. Lord, we pray that they would penetrate our hearts and minds. Even if we've heard them before, they would have a fresh effect in our life. It's your name we pray. Amen. You know, we're all given 3,600 seconds every hour. And we're all given 86,400 seconds in every day. We're all given 31,536,000 seconds every year. This year, you get a bonus portion of seconds because we have 366 days of 31,622,400 seconds in 2016. We're all given the same amount of time. But the Bible says that our life is but what? A vapor. Appears for a little time. It's gone. Those of you that are getting older, you're starting, to re- you're starting to really recognize that life really is a vapor. Young people don't seem to recognize that life is a vapor, but the older you get, you remember being 16 as if it was yesterday, but you're not 16. You might even, your mind feels 16, your body doesn't feel 16. And this life, it passes so quickly, and Jesus is reminding his hearers you know, that, that uh, there is going to be a reckoning. There is going to be, uh, the books will be open. There will be a time when our life will be measured at the feet of God, regardless of who you are. It was C.T. Studd, the the great missionary uh, who had given up uh, his wealth and uh, even his athletic abilities in cricket who said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It was true when he said it. It's true today, still now. If you're taking notes, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning Invest now. Invest now. Right now on TV, you'll have all kinds of commercials. I mean, I don't know how many American Family and Gold's Gym commercials you'll probably see, but they'll all be telling you to invest right now, right? Invest now. No initiation fee. No membership fee. No any kind of fee. No fee for three months. And we'll throw in some protein shakes you know, while we're at it. All that kind of stuff. Invest now in you know, your financial portfolio, because the market is down. What better time to get into the market than when it's down? Gold and silver prices are down. Invest now. Get into these commodities while you can. You now, all these things uh, from a market standpoint are true. And even from a health perspective, it is true we need to invest in our health. It's probably good for all of us to limit our sugar a, a lot less. It's probably a really good thing for us to kind of take stock and invest in better health and invest in those things. But Jesus is speaking specifically here about investing in what's going to matter most in eternity, and that is what is our relationship to Him? And I want to look at several things this morning uh, from the text. The first one I want to look at, and I'm not going to, I'll just speak them as we go along so you can take notes, if you're taking notes, and even if you're not taking notes. The first thing I want to look at is the immediacy, Uh, and it comes out of verse, uh, verse 11 here. Uh, Where it says, now when they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem. Now Jesus was heading to Jerusalem. He is on the final ascent to Jerusalem. Uh, Now if you look on the the map of Israel, uh, he is coming from north to south. But he's actually coming up in elevation because as you, if you get to go to Israel, and I hope we get the chance to go in 2017 uh, as a church, uh, you come up from Jerusalem through the mountain pass there and you're moving up in elevation until you get up to about 2,500 feet. And so he's ascending to Jerusalem. Why? Well this is his final trip to Jerusalem. This is the trip where he's going to lay down his life and bleed and die for the sins of the world. This is the final ascent. He is moving towards Jerusalem. He's not at Jerusalem yet. He's outside Jerusalem in Jericho. And he has, uh, he has just um, said these things to Zacchaeus today in verse 9. If you look at the previous text we were in, uh, today salvation has come to this house because he is son of Abraham Uh, They've seen him do these miracles in in chapter 18, a blind man receiving his sight. And so people are looking and recognizing that Jesus speaks as one with great authority. He heals people. I mean, we, we could actually put Pastor Billy in front of him, and Jesus doesn't need the doctor or anything. He says, healed, done, your spine is better now than when you were 15, right? He has that kind of power. They've seen him exercise power over disease, over sickness, over blindness, over the demonic realm. They've seen him speak with authority, and they're thinking, this just might be the guy. According to Josephus, more than two million Jewish pilgrims would soon be pouring into Jerusalem around this same time. What we would consider uh, in our calendar, the Gregorian calendar, around Easter time, but it's really Passover, and Passover fluctuates, not the same date every year. It's based on the Jewish calendar. But this is the time. It's getting near Passover. It's not quite there yet. It's getting close to Passover. He's ascending. And about two million pilgrims, according to Josephus, would be pouring in. And there was anticipation among all these pilgrims. They had been under the rule of Rome for so long. There was anticipation that God was going to do something great. And He, of course, would do something great at the cross. But that's not even remotely what they were thinking about, right? They weren't thinking about a king that would die on the cross. They were thinking God would do something great and establish his kingdom there in Jerusalem. They thought that it would be very soon. As a matter of fact, Luke writes immediately. They thought that this was imminent in a very short period. We're talking days or weeks. They thought the kingdom of God would come down out of heaven and Jerusalem would return to the glory of Solomon. They thought that they would see Israel and Jerusalem ascend back to its place. And they will see that someday. God certainly will do that. God will someday elevate Jerusalem, and he really will put his throne there. That will come, but it will come according to his plans, his purposes, and his timeline. But the basic question of when, 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 That same question continues 2,000 years ago, doesn't it? The question of when. Those in Jericho, they thought there'd be an immediate fulfillment right around the corner. Could be next month. And their question was, when will God set up his kingdom? And is Jesus the, the king of that kingdom? Will he be the king of that kingdom? They thought he very well could be. He could displace Caesar. Oh, how they hated Caesar. Jesus would rule and reign. The kingdom would be set up. But this question of when, it still continues. Some of our related questions today, think about some of these these when questions that we still have in our society and culture and really around the world. Questions like this, when will the end of the world be? You ever heard that question asked? You might hear it asked mockingly, but you can actually hear it asked sincerely sometimes, or at least kind of curious. When will the end of the world be? Do you know there really will be an end of the world? I mean, in spite of all the Xbox games and PlayStation games and Hollywood movies that are completely infatuated with end-of-the-world scenarios, have you ever noticed? I don't even play video games. I mean, they would depress me. Every New York City falling down and, you know, Hong Kong looks like a jungle now and all that stuff. Well, there really will be an end-of-the-world, and and deep in the heart of man, man knows it. So this question is, when will the the end-of-the-world be? When will World War III begin? Lots of people ask that question. What will be the trigger point to World War III beginning? When will we see world peace? That's another question people ask. When will we see world peace? Will we ever see world peace? The world will one day see peace. But the question remains, when? When will Jesus return? For 2,000 years, the church has waited for him to return. When will Jesus actually return? God knows. The Father knows the hour and the very moment. When How about this one? Even though God never gives a promise of a specific date time, you will never find anywhere in the Bible a specific date to any of those questions. God says they're all coming, and he knows the day and the hour of each and every one of them. But there are some personal questions to consider too. Like how about this one? When will I run out of time to open a Bible, consider the claims of Jesus, and prepare for eternity? See, that's a personal question. When will I run out of time to open a Bible, consider the claims of Jesus, and prepare for eternity? And this is who Jesus is speaking. He's speaking to the one and the one and the one, each individual in the sound of his ears, and each individual in the sound of his ears today reading these red-letter words from the Scriptures. He never gives us a specific time, but he does give us this. He does give us this, folks. He gives us exactly what we need to know and to do, to be ready and prepared. Isn't that great? If your parents or grandparents years back or whatever, if they gave you a, say, hey, I'm not going to tell you what when this is going to happen, but I'll tell you exactly what you need to do, and if you do it, you'll be ready. We'd have no one to blame but ourselves, would we? The immediacy, they thought it was coming immediately, but let's take a look now, if you're taking notes, the instructions, Jesus is going to, give them a different way of thinking. They're thinking the kingdom is going to come any moment, any day, and Jesus begins to give instructions. In responding to those that thought the kingdom of God was about to be unveiled, Jesus uses this parable that serves to explain what has to take place first before the kingdom of God comes to fulfillment. So Jesus is is saying here, that some other things are going to, there's going to be a time lapse. There's going to be a time lapse. Things are going to have to take place in that intermediate period. And what Jesus describes here is a picture of the church age, or you may may have heard it referred to as the age of grace. You ever heard that term? The age of grace or the church age? Guess what? You're living right now in the age of grace. You're living in the church age. In the Bible, there's different dispensations of time. For example, we have the dispensation of the pre-Noaic time, where man's lifespan was much, much longer than it is today. It'll return to that in the millennium reign of Christ. We have the dispensation of the period of the law. Well, the law was given through Moses, and you have that period of time. So you have these different dispensations of time, uh, but we're we're in the dispensation of these two markers, in between two markers. Jesus ascended back to heaven... And then he has his second coming. And their book ends, and we are in somewhere. We're not just in the middle. I believe, to use my football analogy, we're in the fourth quarter of that period of time. We're in the latter part of that dispensation. So he's saying here, he's describing this age of grace or this church age, the period between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. And he may have used, when he tells this parable, as he speaks this parable to the Jewish hearers of his day, he may have very well been using a very contemporary event in their lifetime to convey this analogy. This is from Norval Goldenheist's commentary on the book of Luke, and he writes The following parable is rich in historical allusions. The Savior probably derived the details of this parable from the actual history of Archelaus, the son of Herod who after his father's death, Archelaus went to Rome to receive the sovereignty over part of his father's kingdom in accordance with the intentions of his father's testament. Its confirmation by the Roman emperor was necessary because Herod's empire, in reality, formed part of the Roman Empire. A Jewish deputation also went to Rome to dispute Archelaus' claim to kingship but the emperor nonetheless appointed the kingdom to him. So Jesus may have very well, we don't know definitively, but he may may very well have used contemporary events in their lifetime to convey a parable that would start to sink in. He could use all kinds of contemporary TV shows of today if he was walking the earth, give us uh, scenarios that we would understand, that we could relate to. So the picture is painted of a man Of authority. It says in in verse 12, a certain nobleman. Noblemen had authority, they had wealth, they had positions of power and authority. So it's a picture of a man with authority who's set to inherit a kingdom. He already has a measure of authority, but he's set to inherit a kingdom, which is a necessary formality that he would then be gone for a period of time. Because it says in verse 12, he would travel to a far country. There would be a time-lapse of him traveling to a far country, this necessary travel period, but he would return with even greater authority and greater wealth. And when the door starts opening by itself, you guys can, you know, you can take that as a sign. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, Jesus was already in the room, so don't worry. He was already here. He's in your hearts if you're saved, and he's on the pages of your Bible, but if he wants to push the door open, he will. Don't go say I said some crazy. I didn't. I was having fun. But you see where Jesus is going with this, right? You see where he's, Do you see where he's going with this? Do you see who he's comparing the nobleman to? Well, he's painting the picture that he's the nobleman. That he's going to be going away to a far country. That he already has a measure of power. But he's going to receive from the God of the universe the full measure of the kingdom, and then he's going to return. He is the nobleman in this picture. And he proceeds with the nobleman giving these resources and instructions before he leaves. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus says to the disciples, he gathers them all together. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, baptize them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, making disciples of all men. He gave them instructions before he left. He gave them the resources to do it. If you're saved, you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You actually now have within you the power to now say no to sin. You actually now have the power to say no to yourself. You have the power to actually forgive people and love people, not because of in yourself. The Bible says even our righteousness is what? Filthy rags. But we've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been given the resources to grow more like the Lord. And each servant is given a mina. Which is 100 drachmas. If I leave it there, that still doesn't help you, right? 100 drachmas. Well, Amina was worth a drachma was worth a day's wages, So Amina is 100 days' wages. This isn't like a tip. This is a decent amount. Uh, To put it in our vernacular, this would be like 20 business weeks. If you work a Monday through Friday type uh, work schedule, or if you work a Tuesday through Saturday, or whatever. If you work five days a week, 40 hour work week, typical. This would be like Jesus cutting you a check for 20 business weeks. Saying, this is your start, now grow it. This is your start, 20 business. Business week's worth of work. That would be a good start if your boss gave you that as a bonus to start the year. But they're given that at the beginning, at the outset, with these instructions. The Instructions here. Do work or do business till I come. All are entrusted with the same amount. All are given the exact same amount here. And we'll compare a little later this particular parable to the one that Jesus has in Matthew 25. They're very similar but they're not the same. But they're each given the same amount of resources and the exact same task to do business till He returns. Now this is the gospel. Because we're all given the exact same measure of the Holy Spirit, the exact same gospel, the exact same indwelling of the Lord in our life, we're given the exact same things. We have just as much capability to do things that Elijah did faith-wise. I'm not saying the miracles. However God does miracles is different through every person and every period of time. But that's why James wrote, Elijah was a man just like us. That's why he wrote that, because he was reminding everyone that we're all given the same power of God with salvation. If you receive Christ, if you come to know him as your Lord and Savior, then you have been given the resource. To do business till he returns. You know, you're not walking empty-handed. He's given you a hundred drachma, if you will. Do business till I come. Some of your Bibles may say to occupy. It's pragmatuma. Pragmatuma, to be occupied or to carry out business or to carry on the business of a banker or trader. Now, if you know banking, banking, banking is always to expand the portfolio, Right? Bank of America doesn't just want you as a customer because they really like you. Or BB&T, or Citibank, your money, they gain interest on it, right? They use world markets, they use, well, sometimes they've messed up royally, but they also gain interest on money. That's That's the connotation here, is to grow and to take what was given by the master and expand it. Christian, I have a simple question for you. Are you doing the master's business? This was Jesus' simple instruction do my business until I return. If Jesus returned for you tonight and you met him face to face, would you say, I have been doing your business? Or would you be saying, I've been doing my business? And I just didn't have as much time for you. I was reading, uh, I've given about 21 of these. Uh, 21s are a very finite number, so maybe I have given it exactly 21. Uh, of these out so far to different people in our church who serve over different ministries, uh, we will have them in our bookstore. Our bookstore, we are hoping uh, and believing that we will launch the bookstore right out there called the Calvary Chapel Book Nook. It will actually have current and classics, and all kinds of good stuff in there, and we hope to launch it the first Sunday in February, right after our ministry Sunday the 24th, and you will be able to get one. If you buy them at Lifeway, these are $7.99 on sale, $12.99 full retail price, but you'll be able to get one at our bookstore for $5. Uh, so we will have them in here, and it says, I could, I might, I can't, I should, I will. And uh, Tom Rainer, who's written a lot of books, uh, he's a Southern Baptist uh, writer, uh, and then he, he wrote this for a lot of churches to say, hey, what is it that we could be doing or should be doing for the Lord? And I love what he writes here. Uh, he says, you had to admire his commitment. He made the decision to attend. He would not miss it. The weather was terrible that day. Steady rain, temperature in the 40s. He still got out in the weather. Because of the bad weather, he did not quite make it on time. It was difficult to get to his seat as well, but he persevered. His seat was not comfortable, but he neither left nor complained. His presence vividly demonstrated his love and commitment. He was joyous the entire time. He enjoyed the presence of fellow believers. His attitude, his attendance, and his enthusiasm all reflected his deep and abiding commitment. He was at a college football game on a Saturday afternoon. By the way, he did not attend church worship services the next day. He was tired from the ball game, and there was a 40% chance of rain. And many people, again, if Jesus was to meet them face-to-face, he would be saying, whose business are you attending to? Now, not that those things are in themselves wrong, but Jesus is saying to these servants, I want you to prioritize I want you to focus on my business until I return, because you don't know when I'm going to return. I gave you an open-ended, I'm going to inherit the kingdom, I'm coming back, but while I'm gone, here's your instructions. Let's take a look at the uh, next section. The insurrection. Before we look at uh, what takes place when he returns, look at what takes place also while he's gone. Now they have have the responsibility to, to do business, But look at verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man rule or reign over us. Taking notes, the insurrection. Insurrection, the word insurrection means mutiny or rebellion. Mutiny or rebellion. Uh, This is the first of three profiles. If you don't take any other notes, you might want to take these three pieces. This is the first of three profiles that Jesus outlines in the text. The first one is the citizens. The citizens. Who are they? Uh, well, the citizens are all the people in the world. Now, more specifically at that time, it would have been those citizens in what would be modern-day Israel, those that are there, but really it would classify the citizens, all the people on planet Earth that actually just flat-out reject the Lord. They hear the gospel, Nope not buying that. I'm an atheist. Here they go. No, I want a different religion. No, not interested. If you found your little pet religion and that makes you happy on Sundays, go for it. You ever hear that patronizing thing from people? I'm glad you found something that makes you happy. They they flat out reject the gospel. They're the citizens of the world that say, "Hey, he's, he might be your savior, but he's not my savior. My savior is in my wallet." My savior is what I do for pleasure. My Savior is what I do for myself. It's their own idolatry. But notice what Jesus says of the citizens. Don't miss this. Verse 14, but his citizens hated him. His citizens. The citizens of the world were under, or the citizens at this point were under the authority of the nobleman, whether they recognized it or not. And let me tell you, the citizens of the world, all the people on planet Earth, are under the authority of Jesus whether they recognize it or not. The Bible says at the end of the age, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He already is Lord. It doesn't matter if you believe in gravity or not. Gravity still exists. That's why I don't like parachuting. I don't go do that. If you want to do it, if you're a thrill seeker, I'm coming back with Jesus on a horse and I'm not, I don't have to worry about the parachute failing. Right? I have a great respect for things like gravity. I didn't when I was younger, but I do now. <laughs> Jesus, he, he's already made earth his footstool. The Bible said when he ascended, he actually made earth his footstool. Everyone's under his authority. Even people that use his name in vain all day at work and you could, it blisters your ears, he's still on authority over them whether they recognize it or not. I'll never forget, months after I got saved, I got saved, many of you know, but we have visitor here that you don't know. I got saved in 1995. My wife and I got saved on the same day at Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. In a, in a Sunday morning service just like this, we walked forward, tears running down my eyes. But weeks after I got saved, uh, I, had, I was, my first job out of college was uh, selling health club memberships at, at a big health club, kind of like um, American Family. Uh, you know, just had to put food on the table, kind of thing, and and I had we had a a quite diverse team of guys that we were working with, and uh, we really were we looked like the United Nations. And one of my guys that was that was a peer of mine. He was a Native American Indian guy, um, had his head shaved. Uh, he was born in Oklahoma, I think he was born in Oklahoma, but Native American. He was really he was completely non-religious at all, and I had shared the gospel with him. I shared the gospel with all of them, and uh, uh, I shared Christ with him, and he liked me personally, but he did not like Christianity at all. And so one day he told me in no uncertain terms, he says, This is what I think about your Jesus. One day when I die, I will stand over top of him. I will stand over top of him and tell him, You are not my God. And if I, he said something to the effect, if I have to spit in his face, I will. Because he was still very angry about what had happened to Native Americans years ago in American history. And I understood that aspect, and I talked to him about those things, but, he, but he, he had the belief that Christianity was a white man's religion or something to that effect. And I was like, no, first of all, Jesus from the Middle East. He wasn't from Ireland like me, or you know, I'm not from Ireland, but you know, genetically, I'm like, he was not from there. You've got to understand, but regardless of all that, he died for the world. But you know, God loves people enough that he will allow someone to say like that, say something like that. I hope I see him in heaven someday, that some other time in life he came to know the Lord. But he was already under the authority of the Lord, whether he recognized it or not. Amen? He doesn't think he was, but he already was. Um, Jesus, in uh, Luke 23, 3, I'll read the verse. Um, Pilate speaks to Jesus. In Luke 23, 3, and says, Jesus, this Jesus, says he is uh, headed to the cross, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And what was Jesus' response in Luke 23? It is as you say. Pilate's like, I am the king of the Jews. It's not just some funny little colloquialism. I really am king of the Jews. He was mostly quiet. Then in John chapter 18, in John 18, verse 37. John 18, 37 Pilate says to Jesus again, Are you a king? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness of the truth. Everyone of the truth hears my voice. Jesus again confirms, You heard I'm a king? I am a king. I will go receive the kingdom soon, but I'm already a king. He was a king when he was laying in the manger, wasn't he? The wise men recognized it well before it had ever been confirmed upon him. And then in John 19, verses 10 and 11, uh, Pilate says, are you not looking to me? Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and I have the power to release you? Pilate had great authority. And Jesus answered and said, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Boom. Jesus was like, you have no power unless I gave it to you. He already has the authority. The citizens of the world will say, I will not have him rule over me, but they don't know what they're saying no to. Amen? He's an immovable force. Look at the next, uh, if you're taking notes, the inspection. We looked at the insurrection just prior. Let's look at the inspection. Jesus makes clear that the master will be gone for a period of time. And those who claim to be his servants during that time will have a choice to make. While he's gone, they have a choice to make. They can labor in the master's pursuits while looking for his return, or they can chill out and zone out till he returns. Right? This is what the one servant, I mean, we have three servants here. They can labor and do business and do the work of the master, waiting and anticipating, Jesus, said, look up for your redemption draw at night, waiting for his return, or they can just chill out, zone out, veg out, until he returns. C.S. Lewis said, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. One of the things that motivates us to continue to move forward in doing the work of the Master is to know that we're looking at the return of the Lord, or us be returned to him if it's uh, us going home before the rapture of the Lord coming for his church. We have three significant motivating factors in laboring while we're looking for the Savior's return. If you want to write these three things down, uh, these are different from the three profiles. We only did profile one. We're going to come to profile two and three in just a few minutes. But we have three significant motivating factors while we're laboring and looking for the Lord. Number one is the adoption. Now, we've already been adopted by the Lord with the seal of the Holy Spirit, but it's one thing to be adopted and still be in China before your parents come and actually get you and bring you home to the house that you've been adopted into. Does that make sense? We're already legally adopted by the Lord through the transaction of salvation his blood, but that's a different thing than actually being in heaven with Jesus. Wouldn't you agree? Those of you that have aches, pains, suffering, all that stuff goes away in the final phases of our adoption. So that's the complete. And that's when we're in that eternal relationship with Jesus. We're always in communion with him. There's never even a gap. Number two, we have the accommodations. Much better than the W or the Hilton. We have Jesus saying he's going to go and prepare a place for us that where he goes we would be also. The accommodations of heaven. We actually not only experience the full breadth of our adoption in the Lord, but the accommodations that he's preparing for us right now in heaven. And third, we have a sobering one to remind is the accounting. You might love your boss, you and your boss might have really good relationships, but when you have annual review time, it doesn't matter how close you are. There's criteria that will have to be measured, right? You committed to, when I was uh, in the business world, we would hate annual commitments. You committed to this. Did you fulfill your commitments? Jesus will have an accounting the Bema seat of Christ, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There's There's two seats that everyone will appear before. The great white throne, you do not want to be there. The great white throne, everyone there will be cast into hell in the lake of fire. The judgment seat of Christ, everyone will give an account of their works, whether it was wood, hay, or stubble. And only those things that are pure will actually pass through as rewardable. When the master returns... He will require a full account of those entrusted with the mina, the drachmas, or in our case, our salvation in the presence of the Holy Spirit. This brings us to our second profile, the fruitful servants. The fruitful servants. Uh, First was the citizens and their flat-out rejection. This is the fruitful servants and their faithful service. Their faithful service. The master has returned. Uh, He's now returned here in the setting uh, to inspect the work and the follow uh, through of each of the ten servants. And look what he says to this first one, verse 17. Well done, good servant. Well, that's what you want to hear, isn't it? Because you were faithful in a very little. Yeah, you know what I love about God's requirement of me personally and you? He says you were faithful in just a little. All the great things that anyone has ever done for the name of God, God considers it little. But he also doesn't give me a gigantic list I'm not under everyone else's list. I'm under the list the Lord gives. A little thing. I just want to be faithful in teaching and being a good husband and being a good father. And a Jerry short list. Because if I can focus on a short list, I can be faithful on a short list. You give me eight million things to do on the list, doesn't work so well. He says, you're faithful in a little. So he said, just grow that mina that I gave you. Just grow it. He respects the work. as says, well done, good and faithful servant. If you stood before Jesus tonight, and he reviewed your service to him, would he use the words faithful in your life? It's an interesting thing because we know, as I already said, we're not saved by works. Even our righteousness is filthy rags, and yet Jesus looks at a life and can measure whether it's faithful or not faithful. Now, we're actually made in the image of God. We actually do this all the time. We actually can gauge a certain level of sincerity in what people do, can't we? Even if there's a little bit of self-service in their effort, we we do know when we've seen real sincerity and real sacrifice, and we really can sense it and appreciate it. God can, you know, if if you parents have asked your kids to do some chores, you're pretty sure if they've actually put in effort, right? If they just kind of move things around, right? You know when there's genuine effort, And so a lot of people say, well, nobody's perfect. Try saying that when you stand before Jesus. Well, who are you to judge me? Nobody's doing a good job. Really? Because Jesus says there are people doing a good job. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, well done, perfect servant. He doesn't say, I'm amazed at your work. He doesn't say that either. He doesn't say, what you've done is magnificent. What you've done is Flawless. D.L. Moody wasn't flawless. Moses wasn't flawless, but they were faithful. He says faithful, and we can convince ourselves all we want that uh, hey, uh, what, what, what is the faithful line, and how close can I be to the not faithful line, but it still be considered faithful service? What do you call your work good? You know, you know when you've done really good work, right? In my life, I can look back at work that I've done as good, and I look back and say, that was not good work. You ever look back and say, that was not good work? That you felt guilty that you had not put forth your best work, even though you got paid, or and I got you know bonuses or something, I, I had done, eh, but I didn't give it everything. But you know when you've done good work. Even if someone else said, and some of the times when you've done your best work, it's not always recognized as such. It's especially true in ministry, by the way. You want to serve Jesus, the greatest work he did, no one was appreciating it at that time. They weren't even appreciating it right then. But you know when you've done good work, would Jesus say good work? Would he say your work is a model to others? When he looked at your work, say, I now, your work is a good model. Paul said, imitate me while I imitate Christ. How in the world could Paul say that? Because Paul knew his work was faithful. He didn't say perfect, but faithful. Doesn't say perfect, doesn't say flawless. The Master knows we're incapable of perfection, but with the Holy Spirit, we are capable of faithful. We are capable of being good stewards. Stewardship, taking that which we've been given and using it in a way that honors the Lord. You know, faithful in even little areas, get this, faithful in little areas yields big results. Do you agree with that? Faithful in little areas yields big results. Say, I never read my Bible. You start reading it, it, it'll yield results. Well, I don't really get together with men and women uh, for fellowship and prayer. It'll yield big results. I remember I got saved in 95. Uh, Three years later with Promise Keepers, and I had never got involved in men's study. It transformed my life when I started getting together with a small group of men. transformed my life. Now, I had a desire for whatever God wanted to put into my life, but those small seeds that are planted yield big results. So we have here the inspection. Let's look at the interest. Uh, Jesus says... Um, or the, the report comes back, Master, uh, your mina has earned 10 minas in verse 16, verse 18. The second came and said, Master, your mina has earned 5 minas. One to 10, one to five. It's a multiplication. It's an exponential growth here. Christian, what are you and I doing that's multiplying the kingdom of God? Now, if we don't ask the question, you can be sure when we stand before Jesus, he will ask the question because that's what he's saying here. doesn't matter if it's on our mind, it's on his mind. And we have, the Bible says, the mind of what? Christ. The mind of Christ. What are we doing that will multiply the kingdom? Is our prayer life multiplying the kingdom of God? Is our prayer life growing? Our Bible should look like a dedicated runner's shoes. Do you know some old-time preachers it, when people used to say, hey, I want you to do a funeral for my uh, deceased uh, relative, and they were a believer, the past, old-time past, you know what they'd say? Let me see their Bible. And there, if there was no proof in the Bible, if it looked like it had collected 20 years of dust, and there wasn't a single mark in it, and they had kept, someone kept it in the box, right? It's a holy book, so we don't open it, <laughs> right? No, this is a holy book you're supposed to open. should look like you're just wearing out shoes, tearing it, reading it, writing in it. Our calendars should look like God is in control of them. They should look like God is in control of them. A disciple who doesn't make disciples isn't a disciple. Understand that. A disciple that doesn't make disciples isn't a disciple. Hey, iron's, you know, remember you go back, uh, blacksmith that doesn't do blacksmith's worth is not actually a blacksmith, right? A disciple is an enthusiastic learner, as we've talked about before, he's an enthusiastic follower, but also one that invests in others. Christian, is your personal growth in Jesus a priority? Is growing others a priority? Is sharing your faith a priority? I read a story recently of a pastor in a church that held an internal, true story, held an internal business meeting. Before they started the business meeting, the pastor said, hey, how about someone in the room tell about a recent time you shared the gospel with someone? Complete silence. See, our business of the church is not to do business meetings. Our business of the church is to do the business of the Lord. And then the business meetings support the business of the Lord. That makes sense? It's not to do, we, our business isn't to do business meetings to do his business when we plant a garden do we really expect the seeds to produce nothing no we would if we knew that planting squash would not result in squash we wouldn't buy the seeds would we no we expect it to take some time but we eventually expect to see squash tomatoes we expect to see something come out of the ground and so does jesus he expects to see some coming out of the ground of our hearts that he planted we have here a we have here a uh, have here a 1000% increase 1 to 10 means, and a 500% increase, 1 to 5 meters, and we have a 0% increase. Right? Scale drops pretty good there, right? 1,000%, 500%, 0% if you're looking at uh, a spreadsheet there. And Jesus said in Matthew 13, 23, but he who received the seed on good ground is he who hears the word and understand it and indeed bears fruit and produces, some 100-fold, some 60 some 30. The parable of the sower is the paramount parable in all the scriptures because all the other parables feed off that parable. Then that parable is that the seeds that God plants that land and fertile soil will produce fruit. Is there an increase in our life? Is, the, is our life touching others with the peace and joy and grace that God has given? This is the business that the servants were given to do. Christian, let me put it another way. This one you can remember all through the week. Is Jesus earning interest on your life? That's what the nobleman is saying. Is Jesus earning interest on your life? Now, he doesn't need my life or my interest, and yet he still requires it. Does that make sense? He doesn't need it, and yet he requires it. Let's look at the next thing. The inexcusable. We're coming to a close here. The inexcusable. So we do have the 0% interest. All the servants were given the same command. All the servants were given the same resources and to do business until the master returned. Uh, this, this servant says, I feared you because you're an austere man. You collected what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. Uh, so I decided to put it in a handkerchief. Just going to stuff it away and make sure nothing bad happened to it. Just kind of hide it there. No bit, you know, n- nothing could happen. And he says these things about the nobleman. You're austere. You're kind of you're rigid. You're kind of rough around the edges. You, so, you, get, you get earnings from things you didn't, businesses that produce. You didn't even start them and you get the return from them. By the way, we are never asked to interpret God's motives. That's a very dangerous thing. Don't try and interpret God's motives. This, has, this is why some people never get saved, they're always trying to interpret the motives of God. When God is outside the realm of their understanding, but to the exception of He sent His only begotten Son to die for their sins. Don't try and interpret the motives of God. Um, Understand that we're not saved by works. This servant's not saved because he did or didn't do anything of value for the Lord. It's still the saving work of Christ through His blood and His grace. It's still true today, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. That's true of all servants of Christ. That's true of everyone in the family of God. But Jesus is conveying here that the same amazing grace that results in a genuine conversion is the same amazing grace that produces works of obedience and fruit in our life. Because what God starts, He finishes. If He started a fresh work in you, it will bear fruit. In the parable of the two sons in Matthew 28, I don't have time to go there, but basically in the parable uh, of the two sons in Matthew 28, uh, it's, it's a father who tells two sons to go work in the field. One says, I will not, and later goes and serves. The other one says, I will serve, but never goes. And Jesus asks the question, which one, of you, which one of these do you think received favor from the father? Right. Well, it's not the one that says, I will not, and later goes, because that was all of us for, I said for 25 years, I will not. And then one day at an altar call, I said, I will. And ever since then, I will a lot of times. Will you leave the business world and be a pastor? I won't, I won't, I won't. Okay, I will. That, that, was, that was a wrestling in my life. I mean, there's lots of things in your life that God's going to say, I want you to do, and you're gonna say, I don't know that I wanna do it. He said, What? This is the business I've given you till I return. Well, I don't know if I wanna do that business. Well, you're gonna give an account. This is the business I gave you. Everyone's gonna give an account of the business, and this servant is given the same things, and he's the third profile. He's the fruitless servant, and he chooses foolish neglect. He chooses foolish neglect. He's the third of the profiles. Jesus is reminding here the religious, not the outwardly rebellious. He's not speaking here to the anti God, the anti morality, the anti scripture crowd. There's plenty of them. They're the citizens. He's speaking here to those that say they're the servants of God and say they're a part of the kingdom of God. He's speaking to churchgoers. Then huh? I've got my salvation. I got the fire escape insurance in the back pocket, right? That's all I need. Just give me a little shack. There are no shacks in glory. Jesus, said, I go to prepare for you a mansion, right? I just, I just want a little shack there, a the little corner space of glory. Where did you get that verse? It's not in the Bible. We see here the rationale and the excuses of the servants. Servant, well, I just knew that. I just knew that you 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 want to make sure that uh, you receive from all of your other enterprises, and I know you're you're kind of uh, you're kind of a A very rigid master, and I felt if I failed, you know, God would rather you take the gospel and fail, 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 because He's not looking at monetary results. You can fail a million times, like Henry Ford or Thomas Edison, but guess what? You keep failing, and eventually, you're going to have a breakthrough. But He said, I was afraid. Basically, He's saying, I was afraid of failing, which is really what, what His fear was. That was a lie. He was not afraid of failing. That was an excuse. It was a rationale, but the reality is there's dozens of inexcusable reasons for taking what God gives us and just laying it aside. There's fears. There's doubts. There's I'm embarrassed by the gospel. I'm afraid I'll fail. I doubt I'll be good at doing this, that, or the other. That's not faith. Faith is saying, God, give me the resources. There is idolatry, which is uh, I'm too busy to do it. I would love to serve you, Lord, but I'm just too busy. By the way, if you're too busy to serve God, you're just too busy. Something has to be reprioritized. The true servant's God will move past and through these obstacles by obedience because of what? Because we're so innately good? No, because the Holy Spirit's been put in us. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, than he that is in your own fleshly capabilities the work of the Holy Spirit, it turns us. That was the case of the two sons. The one son had the indivisible of the Holy Spirit and said, even though he was saying, I'm not going to go work, I'm not going to go work, I want to do my own thing, I want to have fun, he couldn't feel at peace and finally says, all right, all right, I'll go do it. And God changed him. You know, it's been well said that the most of the parables deal with true and false conversion. True and false conversion. Over Matthew chapter 25, you don't have to turn there, uh, but I'll read it, Jesus says... Uh, to to a similar servant that that, uh, had hidden away his one talent and he put it in the ground, Uh, Jesus said to him, he said you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered, you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers and at my coming I would receive back my own with interest. And he goes on to say take the talent from him, give it to him who has ten, and he says and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Woe! In this one, the servant that has the one talent that never maximizes, never grows it, seems to have no eternal rebuke. It's just silent on the issue, but not in Matthew 25. Matthew 25, it says he's cast out. Why? Because back to the parable of the sower, there's only one seed that lands on fertile ground and actually is given growth. If you've been given something more valuable than all... The money on planet Earth more important than a cure for cancer. Would you simply sit on it? We have something more valuable than all the wealth of the world, more uh, important than the cure for cancer and AIDS. We wouldn't sit on it. And yet millions call themselves born again followers of Christ, and essentially they sit on the gold mine of the gospel and the service that God's given us to whether it's teaching children or reaching out to lost or going to a nursing home. And, and Jesus will someday look at all of us and say, "What did you do with the resources I gave you?" That's the inexcusable servant. And there's the one other inexcusable group here, and we see their tragic end. Look at verse 27. But those who are enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Now that's the citizens of the world that openly reject. So inside the inexcusable, you have the, re, the kind of church-going folks that kind of, uh, well, I asked Jesus in my heart, so I'm good to go, right? I live like everybody else, Monday through Saturday, but I asked Jesus... And, you know, I have no real, you know, Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, said, have you no care that others be saved or not saved yourself? You can be sure of that. He said that. I didn't say that. So you'll have to take it up with Spurgeon. He's already in heaven. Preached between 6,000 and 24,000 people on any given Sunday in London. But he he made that statement because the Holy Spirit will give us the same desires. There's open and brazen rebellion or there's open procrastination. They're both there, and Jesus says both of them are tragic ends, and we close with this. I want to close on a a good positive note to you, the invitation. I don't want to leave us with this inexcusable decision of the last servant to do nothing, because this isn't Jesus' plan for you and me. Amen? His plan for us is not to do nothing. Anyone can do nothing. He saved us to do something, but not in our own power. I love this statement from Tozer. He says, Moses used the fact that God... Moses used the fact that God knew him as an argument to know him better. Did you hear that? Moses used the fact that he knew God as an argument to know him better. And that's true of us too. Because Jesus says right here, For I say to you, in verse 26, to everyone who has will be given. We already have and will be given a greater love for him. Remember he asked Peter, he said, Peter, do you love me? He didn't say, Peter, will you do great things for me. He said, Peter, do you love me? Well, if you love me, don't worry, you'll do great things. If you love Jesus, you'll automatically, he will begin to do things through you. You'll have a care for the law. You'll have a care to be in discipleship. You'll have a care to pray. You'll have a care to open your Bible. You'll have a care to be in fellowship because the Lord will change your thoughts, and your thoughts will become his thoughts. We've been, called more, we've been called to more than our vain imaginations that we can come up with and entertain ourselves, right? You know what, ah, muse, to think. Ah means not to think. That's the servant that produces nothing. He just veg it out, not thinking. Ah, muse, no thinking. No thinking on the heart of God. No meditating on the heart of God. We've been given all those seconds I named to use What? for his glory. And here's the good news. His glory will never fade. Ours will fade away. Steve Jobs, as I come to a close here, Steve Jobs, everyone knows him, right? Died of cancer. One of the richest men on planet earth when he died. Uh, He had helped lead the iPhone to market. He had helped lead the iPad to market. MacBook Pro, all that stuff, you know, I worked for a company that was competing against Apple, but you know, I remember I had great respect for the things that they produced and the technologies and the, and the ingenuity and even the business, the business uh, plans. But he said this near the end of his life he said, Sometimes I believe in God and sometimes I don't. I think it's 50 50 maybe. Jobs is quoted as saying in, in the book Steve Jobs, but ever since I've had cancer, I've been thinking about it more. Hmm. Ever since I've had cancer, I've been thinking about it more, and I find myself believing it a bit more. It's kind of, maybe it's because I want to believe in an afterlife that when you die, it doesn't just all disappear. The wisdom you've accumulated, somehow it lives on. But what does C.T. Stud say? Only one life soon shall pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. You really will get to take it with you if it's done in the Lord. If it's not, then no, it doesn't come forward. Nor do we. But we have the cure for Steve Jobs of the world. We have the cure for cancer, and it's not actually medical. It's spiritual. It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's called us to be his ambassadors. He invites us to be his ambassadors. He's invited us. He said in John 10.10, the thief does not come to accept to Steal, kill, and destroy. You know, people believe all these lies. And Jesus said, listen, but I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. If you're not experiencing the abundant life, then you're experiencing what the enemy's provided. And destroy. He said, He who believes in me, out of him will flow rivers of living water. Amen? That's what he's provided to us. That's what he's given to us. And that's what we're called to share. And I want to ask you and me that we need to renew our desire to be faithful servants until he returns. Amen? You might witness to the next Steve Jobs before he becomes a billionaire and change his life forever. In a couple weeks, I'll read a little. Our ministry Sunday, I'll read you a little story about how Charles Spurgeon came to Christ. It's quite amazing what God will use any tiny, insignificant thing to bring to the Lord if it's yielded to Him. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time this morning in your Word, and Lord, we pray that we would invest now in your kingdom. For Lord, we have this period of time between your ascension and your return, to labor for you, to labor with you, and, Lord, to see you build fruit in our lives, personally, but also, Lord, touching in the lives of others. And, Lord, I ask if there's anyone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that they would not leave this place today until they've surrendered their heart and life to you. They wouldn't wait until they are on their deathbed, but, Lord, that they would give their lives to you today. And Lord, those of us that know you would recommit to be the servants doing your business, not in our own strength, but in the power of your Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, why don't you stand in prayer? And when the service is over, I'm going to ask